Hi gang, Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the WOE team to help us edit and cut episodes. If somebody you know, or you yourself, has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email womansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point. Yeah, we want this to be mutually beneficial, meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together. Again, email womance, that's W-H-O-A-M-A-N-C-E, mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Mail as in mail a letter, not mail as in mister. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About tartans. About sweaty men in plaids. About the absolute raw nerve of Diana Gableton. About the misty moors. About chairs with mysterious holes in the bottom. About trenchers of food that are all basically brown. About white-on-white racism. <laughs> Uh, about getting the gang together to go fight the other gang, like the Jets and the Sharks. It is always a podcast about West Side Story, never a podcast about Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) It's so true, though. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. Not bad. But we did fine. We did fine. It was too much eye contact, I think. It was very intimate. Neither one of us wanted to finish before the other. Foreshadowing! (laughs) It all connects. Nothing is wasted. Uh, We remain a lean, mean, content-creating machine. This week, we are feeding into that wood chipper, The Secret, by Julie Garwood? Correct. I did it. This very popular and perennially recommended tome came out in the bright, sunshiny days of May 1992. We got emails. We got form submissions on the website. We got Instagram comments. We got Instagram DMs. We got stuff on Twitter as well. You guys really wanted to know why we haven't talked about Julie Garwood yet. And so Isabeau plucked the Garwood she had on her shelf. And you'll be pleased to know I was just informed that the ebook is now available for me to check out from the Chicago Public Library. Timing. Uh, But I also found, little cheeky, the entire audiobook is available on YouTube. Ooh, how's that audiobook? Okay. It's it's a little dated. So thank you for asking because I really want to talk about it. I'm sorry to add something to our list, but the woman who reads it does like a specific cartoon voice for every character, but I loved it. I loved it. My fiance overheard it and he was like, I think she's just having so much fun. But the rest of the time when she's not reading dialogue, she does sound like she's reading the terms and conditions for a Jaguar sale on a commercial. (laughs) (laughs) That's a high recommendation, frankly. I want to feel both posh and pandered too. It did sound like I was listening to it through a soup can, but I don't mind. You get used to it, as our listeners know. (laughs) Our listeners know sound quality is, you know, it's it, it's a moving target. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am a moving target. <laughs> so, Isabel, do you want to read the back of the book for people who don't know about The Secret by Julia Garwood, published in May 1992? I do. Judith Hampton was as beautiful as she was proud. As purposeful as she was loyal, the dear Scottish friend of her childhood was about to give birth and Judith had promised to be at her side, but there was another private reason for the journey from her bleak English home to the Highlands to meet the father she'd never known, the Laird McLean. Nothing prepared her for the sight of the Scottish barbarian who was to escort her into his land, Ian Maitland, Laird of his clan, a man more powerfully compelling than any she had ever encountered, and a spirit 
spirited clash of wills and customs, Judith reveled in the melting bliss of Ian's searching kisses, his passionate caresses, perplexed by her sprightly defiance, bemused by her tender nature, Ian felt his soul growing into the light and warmth of her love. Surely nothing would wrench her from the affection and trust of Ian and his clan, not even the truth about her father, a devastating secret that could shatter the boldest alliance and most glorious of loves. This back of the book is reminding me of something, and it's the fact that there are two big looming projects for our heroine. One is keeping her paternity secret while also seeking it out, and the other one is her friend is about to go into labor, who comes from a long line of women who died in labor. And so she's going to the Highlands in order to, after, you know, 80s movie montage, educating herself on medieval midwifery to save her friend's life. Yeah. It's very interesting that we start with the female friendship of Judith and Francis Catherine. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned it as like an 80s montage of learning midwifery in the Middle Ages because it's basically just terrifying. And poor Francis Catherine is terrified because her mother died in childbirth. Her grandmother died in childbirth. She's convinced that she's going to die in childbirth. And everything's basically terrible. And that's owing a lot to the the villainess of the book uh, who looms large and silent who is Agnes, the local midwife, who just goes around telling people how awful childbirth is um, and is seen as a villain for doing that, for frightening people. However, girl, get your bag. Nothing's going to guarantee job security, making yourself seem like a really important resource. And two, is she wrong? Not wrong. Also at the time, the church was like, if you don't suffer enough in childbirth, you are going to hell. Sins of Eve. This book brings that up multiple times, and I don't know. It just did. <laughs> the book brought up a lot of stuff about medieval midwifery. Mm-hmm. Episode title. <laughs> that <laughs> I was not able to independently confirm, even though I did Google packing birth canal with dirt medieval baby did not find that is something that they allege happened but i've learned from following some respected medieval historians on tiktok that a lot of that kind of stuff we learned about medieval history was fabricated by the victorians who had a whole discipline of like making stuff up about (laughs) medieval people to make themselves seem more progressive Exactly. And so I think one of the things, like, take that with a grain of salt. Some of it's true. But one of the things that I was surprised about after the Agnes tries to tell the town that Judith, our erstwhile uh, female main character, is courting the devil because there wasn't enough pain during a childbirth that she attends. And the priest is also here for this meeting. And I assumed wrongly that the priest was gonna suck and be on agnes's side (laughs) but then father lagan is very much like a friar tuck you know he just like walks around in his cassock dispensing like folk wisdom if it were any other year but night if it was post 2007 he would get his own romance novel but this is 1992 absolutely true he turns out to be like a cool priest but like medieval style yeah very funny very funny guy Which, speaking of 1992, I do want to provide our typical cultural touchstones because we are reading a book from a bygone era. Album of the Year, 1992. Eric Clapton, Unplugged. I feel like this should have been DQ'd because it's just playing songs that already exist acoustically. You know, I don't know. I'm not a musician. Sounds like it's easier, honestly. Everything that is old is new again, right? And that was even true in 1992. Yeah. Best picture. I want you to guess. Best picture. 1992. Unforgiven. No. What is it? Silence of the Lambs. Oh, shit. Okay. It was the only horror movie for a really long time to ever even get nominated for an Academy Award. Although a lot of people argue that it's not horror. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not what this show is about. If you want to hear that, you'll have to give a listen to our podcast within a podcast. Morgan yells at Isabeau about things Isabeau doesn't care for. (laughs) Now available on Patreon. There we go. (laughs) Would you pay us to listen to that? There we go. If you'd like to pay us to listen just to this, even though it's free and available for everybody, but if you'd like to chip into the kitty, uh, because... 
the Chicago Public Library only just now got me my ebook. I bought the book and I read it. Don't worry. But uh, go ahead and check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash romance. Do you smell that? Do you smell that ba- bacon? Because I just brought it home. Good job, boo-boo. Thank you. All right, where do you want to kick this off? I want to kick this off with the fact that this book was so highly requested. Like, I, I understand why completely. And not just in a way of like, it's clear to me that this book has a lot of appeal. This book has like a lot of structural nuance that I think redeems a lot of the stereotyping that happens in romance novels. Do you want to explain that a little further? Like, use an example from the text. For example, our heroine, if you wanted to be reductive, she is both plucky and kind. She's generous. She's smart. She's chaste and untested. She's all of the things that, like, I think someone who maybe never read a romance novel but understands they exist would predict for a heroine. But there's something in the, like, actual building out of her that doesn't negate any of those things but makes them charming a fully formed easy easy to connect with judith is an incredibly lived in character and i'm glad that you you called her untried not just in the sense of her sexual uh life but also just in the sense of her life in general she's lived a very sheltered life with a very shitty uncle and a very nice aunt and uncle and she's shuttled back and forth and like the mission that she's taken on to help ease her best friend in the whole world through birth even though she's never even kissed a man Mm -hmm. she's going out and seeking this information and she's trying to get herself educated so that she can help her friend and she's doing it incredibly earnestly and it's no Never treacly, even though like there were moments where I almost rolled my eyes. It just it was earnest yes. and tender and never smaltzy. Yeah, and I think that also goes holds true for the hero Laird Ian. Mm-hmm. Which is the word Laird, just the word Lord in a Scottish accent. And then they were like, we're gonna make it its own thing and spell it out L-A-I-R-D. Put it in the brogue. Yeah. It, no, probably not, right? It's probably its own term. Anyways. I don't know. That's like saying like Ian and John. It's like Ian is a name, John is a name, but Ian is the Gaelic form of John. Oh, I didn't know Ian is the Gaelic form of John. That I think like he is very much, I mean, like saying he's the Gaelic version of John is, is pretty accurate, actually. Like he's just very, like she even says he smells male. He's very self-contained. His main focuses are things like duty and responsibility, but he's lusty. He is, like, I think your stereotypical romance hero. I think, like, in our current moment, it's easy to be like, oh, there's this, like, wide range of different kinds of of men that a hero can be. But I think that varietal was a lot more nuanced in the early 90s. (laughs) You know, something like a cinnamon roll or a himbo is sort of a reaction against more than it is, like any kind of like rebellion from but while he is all of those things like there's not the typical miscommunication issues that you see in romance novels where they just don't tell each other things or at least not in an unjustified way the main issue with it is like a misassumption which is I think far more relatable I think it is really relatable and one of the ways that this very taciturn taciturn ah beautiful yeah very typical male warrior archetype like one of the ways that this book does a really good job of humanizing and living into ian is that you're right there are very few miscommunications they're incredibly forthright with each other even when they disagree which is quite often but he's incredibly observant there are a couple of moments where she's trying to actively hide something from him or like she doesn't want to talk about something and he'll be like hey i can literally see that you're shaking do you just want to talk about it Mm. and then she's like no i'm okay and then she just bursts into tears she's like i'm (laughs) fine i'm shaking because i'm so horny she's shaking constantly she's a leaf in the wind she is all a tremble for everything (laughs) she feels deeply she's like tinkerbell she is like tinkerbell she's lithe and blonde and small to his very big beefy Scottishness and like this book is like a wash in like romance tropes 
and jargon. She has violet eyes. He has gray eyes. Yep. Someone shows up and their green eyes are what? Flecked with gold. <laughs> <laughs> like they describe like Frenching as like erotic play. There's all of that terminology. He spills his seed inside her. Not just inside her, but into her womb specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't think we ever get clarification on whether or not she knows that's where babies come from. Interestingly enough. She knows how they come out but you're right I don't know that she ever explicitly learns how they get put in there in the first place Ian ponders I wonder if she even knows how these things get made after she delivers her first baby and we never really get confirmation. We never get a satisfactory answer. Although there is quite a funny joke because when Francis Catherine and Judith are young and they're like telling each other what they think happens, they're like, you have to drink out of a man's cup and that's how you he get spits, pregnant. He's, he spits in your cup. Yeah, which is not wrong. Not wrong. <laughs> And then there's like the, when the friends finally meet again after all these years, they're laughing. And then Judith is like, well, I guess you let somebody spit in your cup, huh? And that was quite a funny joke to carry through from the beginning, I thought. Yeah. And like that centering of the friendship between not centering, but certainly like holding dear the relationship, not just between um, Francis Catherine and Judith. But also, like, these other relationships that are forming as Judith settles into her life in the Highlands. All of these relationships are held very tight around that center orbital relationship, which is, of course, the the male uh, protagonist and the female prota- protagonist. But there's a lot of head hopping as well. And I still fucking love it. I still fucking love head hopping. Justice for head hopping. A ton of head hopping for a 1992. Like, don't do it if you're bad at it, but like that goes for a lot of stuff. (laughs) I agree. I think that goes for all the stuff. Don't do it if you're bad at it. Like, you know, stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to, but. Or just practice before you (laughs) unleash it, I guess. No, I agree. I thought the head hopping was really quite clever and that like one of the ways that those transitions I felt were really strong is that we would be in either Ian's head or Judith's head. They'd notice something and then we'd hop into another person's head like they they have this dinner early in their journey from England to Scotland and Judith is noticing a bunch of stuff about their hosts that the barbarous Scottish warriors are not noticing. And then suddenly we're in the head of the hosts very briefly. And then we're back into Judith. And then we're in Ian noticing Judith, noticing the hosts. It builds this really beautiful nesting doll that is really just about care. This couple wants to know about their daughter and they haven't had any news and nobody knows how to read or write. So these are the warriors that can tell the hosts how their daughter's doing. And while this is like, a full-length romance novel, Isabel will pay full price per word for this one. It does not have the same kind of fluff that I expect even from like a great romance novel. Like that little aside, that little side quest about having the dinner with the couple and Judith discovers that their daughter married someone in the clan that she's, what's the name of the clan? The Maitlands. The Maitlands. Because she's married into the Maitlands, the Maitlands are a feudal clan. Like they like to fight with the these other, you know, three or four clans or anybody at any given time. So they're very insular and they are very patriarchal. And so their daughter doesn't come visit them. And one of the men in the party, Brodick, his brother is actually, he it's his sister-in-law. And so Judith works out a way to that she can kind of put herself out there, play the fool and risk potential embarrassment from their hosts by trying to get Brodick to talk about what's going on with Isabel, their daughter, who goes on to become one of our uh, female protagonists' most beloved friends. What I like about that is that her beauty, like the fact that she is captivating to all of these men, is the reason that they never stop watching her or paying attention to her. And so she's able to leverage that, although she don't know she's beautiful. She, like... Mm-hmm still is able to leverage that in order to create pathways of communication that otherwise don't exist. And 
it also goes to like her putting herself out there, being willing to make herself vulnerable and indeed look kind of silly in the process is what makes her winsome. And so we have like through this like other like I think in you know other romance novels this might have just been like a pretty little vignette we actually get character building we understand what the motivating like energy behind the plot is and it's that all of these people are physically attracted to Judith and that also makes Judith's physical attractiveness like central to the story which how often does that actually happen oftentimes it's just like Obviously, like, it matters because the hero sees her and falls in love with her. But other than that, it doesn't really do much for the story. But spending all this time talking about how beautiful and unselfconscious Judith is, is actually serving the story, energizing plot, you know, which is not something I, I can recall reading previously. Besides maybe in Beast by Judith Ivory, which was like, it energizes her to make her an asshole. Right. And the fact that this energizes Judith to make her winsome, because like the word that you used was winsome and captivating. And literally everyone is captivated by her beauty, but she's been treated so terribly by her drunk, pathetic uncle that she doesn't know she's beautiful. She doesn't really know the power that this has over others. But the fact that it is so motivating is so true. It her beauty moves the entire clan it moves the plot forward and it also does function to create spaces of vulnerability because she does have this like babe in the woods about her that like especially men respond to as wanting to be protective but women respond to her vulnerability her like earnestness her ability to make herself as you said silly because she is really just wanting to make connection which is like honestly (laughs) this clan is so as you said, insular. So they're like not into that. And so like she's met as an outsider, but it's like hard to look away from a bright, shiny thing. And she's a bright, shiny thing who's like constantly in everybody's way and in everybody's business and like just like making herself winsome, as you said. I think that's such a, you're right. We don't see beauty act very often. The other thing that's gesturing, and like I think this book is gesturing towards, but maybe isn't actually fully succeeding at because it's a romance novel and that's okay. What One thing that I noted early on by starting the introductory t- chapter just about the, f- the friendship between these two women who start off as young girls and we get so much character building in that for our heroine, although when you're reading it, you honestly can't tell who's going to be the central mover of the text because both of their perspectives and reasonings uh, and personalities are given so much space there. Judith's decisions through the book have a lot to do about being have a lot to do with being like a team player and likewise Ian's he doesn't make a move to marry her until you know he feels like it's something that would be like it, it's very much a selfish act he finds out that her father is the lord of the laird pardon of the <laughs> the rival clan and he is very scared that he'll find out that his daughter is staying with the Maitlands and that he'll then marry her off to the other group that they're feuding with. Um, and then he won't be able to, the Dunbars, and then he won't be able to marry her. But their marriage takes place within the council of the community that they're a part of, which is all just to say, like, I think this book is thinking systemically. The choices our heroine makes are much more about the collective rather than the individual romantic project. The hero maybe less so. But I I thought it was really interesting to read a romance novel that seems to be making, like, a genuine attempt at thinking about falling in love as, like, a community project. And, like, when Judith arrives in this community, she finds out that her friend is, because of all of those reasons that came up at that dinner party, her friend actually feels very isolated in this community and that they're not very warm and welcoming. And that, you know, it's not unlike a Lifetime Christmas movie where the, you know, person comes in and is, like, turns the, like, curmudgeonly town around and now they have, like, a Christmas festivus or something. It does that without completely, like, solely sending Judith's motivations and Judith's reasonings and it does it through this like very clear warm open dialogue in the text I think it's right to 
bring up both the idea of this system, but that love is really in this way, like an action towards building community, but also bringing community along. I think that's a really smart way of thinking about what this book is gesturing at, because one of the things that you said earlier is that there isn't a ton of miscommunication between our two main characters, but there's actually quite a lot of miscommunication in the town Mm. because Francis Catherine feels isolated because she doesn't know how to communicate with the other women or help them or do the things in community. So she has stopped trying because all the other women are really, really busy with their kids and their husbands and like nobody has any time and nobody wants to show her what to do. And Isabel, the other woman, is incredibly isolated. Like all of these women are living incredibly separate and lonely lives and they only have their husbands who love them. Like that's very clear in this book, but cannot help them integrate with the with the town proper because a they don't see it as a problem and b they wouldn't know what to do if they did but they are attuned to the unhappiness of their wives which is why Patrick makes the move of like no we're gonna bring in this English outsider and then (laughs) the fact that she has to win over the town and like undo this miscommunication in the clan it's not just that she's marrying Ian it's that it's the entire town and one of the ways that that feels really special is like everything we've just talked about but one of the ways that it feels incredibly familiar to me is what you said about Ian wanting to marry her for selfish reasons he totally just wants her bod and that's fine whatevs but the fact that he's like lived his whole life for his clan and up until this point and that he basically raised his brother that's a very typical romance hero move right the duke loves the town the duke takes care of the villagers it's like the exact same thing and And so then the selfish move is doing the thing where you marry the wrong girl because you love her too much. And this is the only thing you'll ever give yourself. And it turns out that it's actually a gift for the town. Yeah. But I think like the text kind of bears it out a little bit more, I think, successfully and a little bit more uh, juicily. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's because the miscommunication isn't between Mm -hmm. Ian and Judith. It's because it's the town itself that is not communicating properly with itself. It's like we have the final conflict is between Ian and his council or Mm -hmm. he is the council's laird actually. He decides that they are going to leave this community because of this longborn feud with the McLeans. And one of the members of the council who has known the evil Laird McLean, who turns out to actually be a very thoughtful father, <laughs> a secret, secret good dad, mm-hmm. kind of sense of like all of the, the, the stereotypical or like I would just say typical romance conflicts of pride, miscommunication, that all bears out in this like communal sense and then is resolved as like the final act. It's not her friend successfully giving birth. It's not her connecting with her father. It's the fact that they have a rupture in the between themselves and the community. And then Judith is the suture that brings them back together. Judith and the women of the community, because this is also very much like a a women's work is critical work text. On the other side of the political spectrum, (laughs) this book also seems to be making like anti-Scottish Highlander (laughs) political structure arguments. Um, There's a moment where Judith is trying to understand that like as Laird, her young hot husband is just like making recommendations to this council of significantly older men. And she's like, why isn't it the other way around? Like in jolly old England. And she makes that kind of, it just reminded me of like how every art, like how every Bible verse is an argument for and against itself. She's like, well, don't you think it would be more community centric if you were just in charge and they just advised you, but you got to make all the final calls? And it was like, it's weird to read like an argument for feudalism. (laughs) I also noted that and it's like, 
My first thought was like, yeah, a bunch of old men making decisions for young folks. I hate that. And then I was like, wait, she's advocating for authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. And they have a current that, democracy. And that's how they get you. That's how the authoritarians <laughs> will get you. Look at this young hot person. He's kind of a cult leader. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And that's kind of what she's doing. Maybe that's why the text created the hotter side character, which I think was just a setup for another book in the series. But they're like, see, he's not that bad of a charismatic leader because there is someone everyone thinks is hotter. So (laughs) he can't be like full on dictator. So true. And I also love like there's not even like there is jealousy and jealousy does like provide motivation, but jealousy isn't really a like site of conflict. Yeah. Like everyone in the town, like um, not everyone, but Francis, Catherine, and Judith both remark on how hot what's his name is Ramsey. Ramsey, and he, you know, and it makes their like spouse is a little bit jealous, but they're like, "Hey, I know I- I'm going to dance with the one who brung me. Don't worry." And then there's also the element of like when Judith is on her journey to the Highlands with Ian and his compatriots Alex and Gowrie and Broddick. All of them fall in love with her. Um, Brodick specifically expresses, asks Ian, like, what are you going to do with her? And Ian's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, well, are you going to keep her? Because if not, I would like to keep her. And Alex also says something similar. In another text, that would, like, serve to make him, like, kiss her hard and hold her shoulders too much, which uh, 100% happens in this book. But that's not, like, the bearing out. The bearing out is the fact that he realizes that she's someone who can fit in with his community because she's not just beautiful. She's someone they want to spend time with and that they want to make happy and take care of. And whenever the hero decides to marry her, like, they just kind of fall back. Like, (laughs) they don't really, like, make, like, a big romantic gesture or, like, punch him or anything like that. In fact, that conversation that... Brodick has with Ian feels really unique to me in romance because I don't like there's another version of this where he would have become a villain in this story and like would have been like either an Iago from Othello or something like that where like the jealousy would have been hard Mm. and he would have been an antagonist and we would have seen Ian as an even better person because Brodick has been shown to be so terrible. I think there's a different story here that would have been about like bodily consent and all that stuff. But the fact that it isn't and that Broderick truly loves and supports Ian and it's just like, hey, give me a heads up, whatever your choice is. And is respectful of the choices of these two autonomous beings as being like not about him. (laughs) Exactly. Like and immediately and like is then there to support their coupledom and like throws his shoulders behind that. And that like he immediately whatever feelings he had that were budding in his chest, he just immediately buries and he's like, all right, not for me. Cool, cool, cool. I loved that. I thought that was so good that some like cisgender het white dude would be like all right not about me cool we can still be friends I can still support you and I can still hang out with Judith because I actually genuinely like spending time with her and now it won't be romantic it'll just be platonic and that's cool too and this book also kind of challenges that conversation you and I have all the time and I'm sure everyone who talks about romance has all the time which is like you have to take these books within their cultural context we are not making any concessions politically for this text no nope. it is you know a good story about kind people doing the right trying doing their best yeah and the only context to take in consideration is is the actual historical era of the text itself or at least like i didn't pick up on anything i was pretty blinders to it if there was something in there because i was just absorbed by those wacky accents in the audiobook But that conversation between Broddick and his laird, Ian, was definitely in the running for my sexiest part because of the concept of, like, just one sleeping bag with two – she was in a man's sandwich. (laughs) She was in a man's sandwich. And they have this conversation over her sleeping form. Yeah, and he's like, she likes you better. I hope you appreciate that fact, you know, because I really like her. 
you know <laughs> it was very like it's kind of the conversation you dream that two men would have about you over your sleeping form precisely oh my god it is exactly like jacob and edward in the third twilight book in the tent where she's super cold and since jacob runs hot it's a little bit kinder than that <laughs> yeah it's way kinder than it's like way better like more mutual respect is present exactly because it isn't about possession it's just about like trying to figure out where the other person is and mutual respect in that yeah um, but my actual, are you ready to talk about sexiest part, weirdest part? Please. But my actual sexiest part is, oh my God, a virginity loss scene, mm. which I wasn't expecting. Um, but the first time they make love, <laughs> she's. And they do make love. Yes, this is not an, I was kind of expecting it to be an off page. Yeah, it is. A, it is. A, it is steamy. It's got a couple of sex scenes. Uh, we got Conalingus. We got Felacio. But I, I loved the I loved that first sex scene because it was incredibly focused on restraint and not rushing the sex act. And there were so many points where we were we're in Ian's perspective in that sex scene. And there were so many points at which in any other text, he would have been like, his. it would say something like, his passion overwhelmed him, right? Doesn't happen. He takes it slow. It's like his passion is overwhelming him. So he had to concentrate harder and he had to check in with Judith more. And like, once again, it's striking that like, we are not making any concessions. Like everything is stated outright. Are you ready for this? Can I do this? There is one point where she asks him uh, not to kiss her down there which is a trope of the historical genre and he does anyways but other than that there's it's just like a very conversational slow moving it is the like top gun billowing chiffon drapes flickering white candle kind of sex scene that I happen to very much enjoy. And uh, it, it talks about like he uses his hands to get her off. She's scared she won't be able to orgasm. He doesn't understand that that's what she's mm -hmm. expressing to him, but he just wants her to feel better. So he's like, oh, no, definitely. Um, and then he does help her to achieve orgasm even though that's not he wasn't aware that that's what she was fearful about right like which is a really clever way of like taking something into a historical context and your assumptions about a historical context which would be like no one believed in the female orgasm which is uh, hooey everyone had it figured out by that point but like well not everyone steve but the <laughs> the like idea that you can have conversations about something without using the like contemporaneous language mm -hmm. and without using although this one this this book definitely enjoys its purple similes <laughs> sure does what was your sexiest part or do you have any response to my sexiest part I I mean, I do want to like linger here just a bit because I think this is a sex scene that understands that sex doesn't begin necessarily in a physical place, right? Like she wants to have a bath, yes. so he makes sure that there's a steaming hot bath for her. And he understands that she's like feeling pretty trepidatious. So like at one point, like he's like gone into like a cold river to clean off because, you know, he's a gentleman. <laughs> and he comes back and he's, God, she's got to be done by now and she's not. And so he just closes the door and waits. Yes, gives her her privacy. Exactly, and he doesn't want to intrude. And all of that where he's like, do you want to touch me? I want to touch you. Like, it really helps her engage her mm -hmm. own agency, which I thought this sex scene takes so many pages to actually consummate itself which was so nice it like it lingers in the sensations and the smells and the flickering light and her very prim white nightgown and like her hair that's been slowly drying by the fire there's obviously like a bare skin somewhere like it's great <laughs> I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I do think there is like a lot of romance writing thinks about the sex act being carried out on one party as opposed to like a mutual back and forth but we do get scenes of her touching his shoulder getting comfortable with touching his naked shoulder and then touching other parts of his body and not necessarily like sexual parts of his body like his back there's also a point at which he's like 
touching different parts of her until she like gives him like a verbal you know acknowledgement that that's what she's enjoyed that she likes to be touched there and it's mutual so it's there's back and forth and like an actual communication happening as opposed to like he ran his fingers down her bosoms and like made her feel all tingly but we never hear about her like touching him and seeking out pleasure for him unless it's like to provide a warm void (laughs) Yeah, and I think, like, these sex scenes also speak to each other and speak to, like, their growing relationship because, like, he has the scene where in this deflowering situation where he's, uh, I'm going to go down on you. And she's like, no. And he's like, no, I am. And then a couple nights later, she wants to give him a blowjob. And he's like, no. And she's like, no, I want to. And, like, you did it to me, so, like, now I want to do it to you. Which is also about growth and her own confidence and everything else. And yeah. honestly, it's hard for me to choose a sex scene since they, like, do kind of function like dominoes. But one of the last sex scenes, it's, like, it happens in this, like, pre-dawn light. And he starts, like, she's asleep and he's awake thinking about her, which is just another scene of, like, sex begins before you even touch another's body Um, and he's just like looking at her and wanting her and then he like hugs her and then he just like starts kissing on her neck and then she wakes up and then you know he fingers her into orgasm and then they have sex and I'm like this is great this is lovely everything about these sex scenes is working for me (laughs) yeah and the way he thinks about her is never kind of like abrasive he's always like curious or charmed which is great if you're ready to move on my weirdest part Which is a weirdest part that's obviously going to indicate how much I respect this novel. (laughs) Because it's like, this book is so good, and here's where it fell short of perfect. So we've been talking about this idea of, like, systemicness, and we've been talking about this idea of communication. And there were a couple of points of communicating with the heroine that I think were understood to be generous and part of being a generous lover or a generous friend or whatever, it made me realize that Judith is doing all of the emotional labor for an entire community. Yeah. So, like, the what the thing that, like, flipped that switch was something that he, he notices our heroine has um, grown up with an alcoholic uncle, and so she's very fearful of people drinking, and one of her requests is that of her husband she makes him promise that he's never going to get drunk in front of her and he's having wine at a party or not a party at a council meeting but they're doing a little pre-celebration a little birthday cake in the break room for the wedding and ian is communicating with francis catherine because judith has had kind of a freak out and he says you know I would like to understand. <laughs> Help me understand. And Francis Catherine is like, I can't really tell you why because it's not really my place to tell you why. That's really your wife's position. And so then he reaches out to her and she has to share this story of, you know, Francis Catherine gives him like the Cliff's notes and then he talks to her about it. And then yet again, we come back to this. That's like the thing that like triggered my noticing this. Then we get to this point where Judith is kind of instated as the Laird's lady. And it says, Judith learned that by pleasing the elders, she was accidentally teaching them how to please her. Managing up. Yeah, exactly. It's 100% managing up. And it's Judith is the one who talks to people, asks people questions. And Judith's the one who, like, manages people's expectations And I feel like it's just, it's all Judith. (laughs) And like, it's almost like the book has a sense that other people are participating by merely asking questions of Judith. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the same thing. And I don't think it's aware of that. This book sees Judith as having massive amounts of capacity and that like other people just haven't done the work. So it's like on Judith to like show them the light of what the work is with her like megawatt capacity. And it's like, that's too much for any one person, but especially a woman. What are we doing here? Yeah. And especially in a text that's like, maybe all of the women shouldn't take turns. It's anti-communist. And maybe all of the women shouldn't take turns uh, cooking because just this one woman wants to cook every day. And like, she should be 
she should not have to accept charity because she has this skill and we should put her to work in the kitchen and let her live in our home with us. And so it has this like awareness that like women's work has value and it's really insistent upon that even in the beginning when she refuses to leave behind the gifts that she made for the baby um, and the new mom. But at the same time, it doesn't recognize all of this like social maneuvering it like sees it as important work, but it also sees it very much as like, it, I don't think it identifies it as women's work. And I also don't think it acknowledges that it is a labor being entirely put on women and it doesn't problematize it, I think is my issue. Exactly. It doesn't problematize it. It doesn't. It's not that it doesn't see it as labor because it does. It sees it as virtuous labor that needs doing. So do it for free. <laughs> Yeah, so do it for free. Like that's like you're just better at it is definitely the implicit tone of that. Absolutely. It is totally unproblematized. Yeah. What's your weirdest part? Well, there's a very strange <laughs> Luke and Leia moment at the very end of the book where our where Judith has been taken on the road by the McLeans and she doesn't know it immediately, but her full-on biological brother is like, hey. Not, <laughs> not half-brother, not step-brother. Mom and dad. And he's like, hey, pretty lady, you look like you're important and you look like you belong to Ian Maitland. I'm going to fuck him up by fucking you and bringing you to my bed. And she's like, that's repulsive for so many reasons. And then he kisses her and she's like, I'm going to throw up. He tries to kiss her. He doesn't succeed at kissing her, thank goodness. He's like, don't throw up. I'm going to come get you later. And she's like, stop it, big brother. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I'm glad that it's not incest adjacent, sort of like romanticizing it. It is full on like horrified. Brothers and sisters should not fuck. <laughs> yeah 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 but she like instead of just being like hey man like i think i might be your sister like cool it she's like i can't tell him i'm his sister because that will further complicate things and it's like girl the complication train has left the station seriously you got you gotta let this be known i thought about the game of thrones scene that is exactly what i thought too it was also on horseback i I thought about the Game of Thrones scene between Theon and his sister, but I also, like, the first Game of Thrones book came out kind of in the early 90s. My timeline might be wrong, but I, it, it was such a, this felt like such a strong reaction to, like, Jamie Cersei fucking each other that I was like, oh, man, I wonder if... <laughs> it's two blonde people, yeah. Two very blonde people who, like, are very reminiscent of one another. And I was like, man, I wonder if Julie Garwood read Game of Thrones and hated that part because this is very strong. It's much, it's not tongue in cheek like Luke and Leia at all. It's like full on, this is disgusting, don't do it. But it's also like, yeah, and like her her father, unbeknownst to everyone, but her in the room at the time is like, hey, son, you w want this lady? <laughs> and he's like, I sure do, pops. And he's like, I sure do, pops. He's like, great, you should have sex with her. And she's just like, oh, brother. <laughs> and it's weird. And it like happens. And then it's like, then it's like she reveals like the familial connection. And her dad's like, oh, I love you. I think you're great. You know? Yeah. It's resolved so quickly. And, and her brother's like, now I'm just a regular big brother. And I was like, is this a critique on like all like intersex family relationships? Like, is this doing like the most work imaginable for a romance novel? Or is this just a weirdest part? And it never comes comes back up it never comes back up it's resolved super super quickly and so for nobody mentions it I mean like why would you right like everyone's just like let's forget that <laughs> happened because like now I'm gonna be your actual big brother rather than like your daddy yeah I just like everything about it felt like a hammer of moralization that I didn't understand was totally unprepared for and then is just totally left twisting in the wind also like not moralization that we needed absolutely not but I don't, I mean, I say this now, but like, I also like the biggest searches on Pornhub are now like stepbrother, stepmom. So maybe it, maybe we, this is the moralization from 1992 is what we need today, which is like, 
don't kiss your sister on the lips. <laughs> Maybe Julia Garwood was just a prophet and we didn't know it. This book is a prophet. Yeah, man, what if? What if? Oh my god. There's also like this book has real is really funny, laugh out loud funny because of all of the like other the like council, the the older Scotsmen who surround Ian are hilarious, which by the way, everything that's charming about Outlander is in this book. Just like everything that's like weird about Outlander is in Awaken My Love. I don't know how Diana Gableden can like genuinely be like, "No, it's not no. Weird." Weird. I don't think it's a romance novel. I think it's weird that you do. Like, <laughs> get. Yeah, she's an odd duck, Diana Gableton. She her so her newest book just came out, and I read an interview of her in the New York Times, and the New York Times guy is like, "What's a guilty pleasure book?" And she's like. I don't feel guilty about reading mm-hmm. books and I don't think other people should either. So I refuse to engage with the question. And then he's like, okay. And then one of the other questions is like, what's a book that you feel like you should have read and haven't? And she's like, I don't deal with shoulds. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I don't- oh, to be Diana Gableton. Like, oh, to be Danielle Steele. Oh, to be like Jennifer Weiner. These people who are just like, I work 20 hours a day and I have it all fucking figured out. Next. Next. Like, I'm like, I'm above you. Like, what are you doing here, you peon? And I was like, I can't believe the New York Times printed this. You know what? They could all use a little bit more Judith. They could all use more Judith. You know what, Judith? Like, I don't think we talk about this enough on the show. And I think this book is actually a really good fictionalization of the project that Judith... Um, Ivory was working on, but also other. Oh, oh, you mean another, another Judith. Judith? But you're talking about Judith the character. Yes, I meant <laughs> Judith the character. Willing to like humble yourself. Yeah, and make yourself a little bit silly, and like be in the practice of community building. And I think the best parts of this book, really, are like the best parts of like the old romance writers. I was thinking about Judith Ivory, but I'm also thinking about Kathleen Woodowis when she read who wrote Hummingbird? Laverell Spencer. When she read Hummingbird by Laverell Spencer. And she sent it to her editor and was like, no notes, give this woman money. Yeah. And I just think we need more of that. And like Judith of the of this book is like that. There are parts of it, and I think we kind of stumbled on them in our discussion, that kind of smack of bootstrapsism. And, like, when women were women and men were – like, the culture wars is yeah, uh, totally here. Uh, I just smelled it. But I also think – so I have a question for you. This book, I think, is so ripened with romance tropery, romance finery, romance fippery. Like – do you think this book would be enjoyable to someone who doesn't read romance in the same way that it's enjoyable to us? No, but I think this is, if you are oh. romance curious, this is a really good place to start. Like, I think this is a really quality starter romance, but I think if you do not want to read a romance and you want to read a historical book about Scotland, like, you would be probably put off by the things that are quite charming yeah, because it is so jargon heavy. Yeah, like this is a this is definitely a a romance for romance readers. Yeah, but I would say if you're curious and like you know, or maybe you've only read contemporaries and you you yeah. want to like tow your tow yourself into a new subgenre, this would be a good place to start if you've never read a medieval or a Scotland a Highlander one. What is the like special appeal of Highlanders? Like I get the special appeal of pirates and cowboys and all sorts of different Halloween costumes that take off their pants in these books. What do you think is the particular, like, a spice of a Highlander? I think it's that they love hard, they are hard, and they are mostly naked in kilts all the time. I also, and, like, here's, like, here's what I actually think. I mean, I think those things, too. But I also think that, like, Highlander the film and the Freddie Mercury song, Who Wants to Live Forever, (laughs) is actually just, like, constantly humming in the background. And those two things... What is it about them that's, like, impossible to look away from? Are impo- they're captivating. They're so winsome. They're impossible to look away from. If you've never seen the movie Highlander, go watch it. If you've... 
Have you heard Freddie Mercury's Who Wants to Live Forever? Yes, you should explain it, though. (laughs) And what does it have to do with Highlanders? Remember, you've got to type. (laughs) Okay, so the song Who Wants to Live Forever was written specifically by Freddie Mercury for the film Highlander, which is about a magical Highlander who has to murder everyone else so that he can have the power and be the only one. And in the beginning of that film, he falls in love with this woman and he never, he stops aging, except she does age. And so there's like this incredible montage where they live their whole lives together. And then like the song plays and he calls her name across the hills and suddenly she's like the beautiful woman is an old crone and like dies in his arms. It's great. And like, that's just the opener. That's before we even get into the story proper. It's just... So why did why does that say about the appeal of the Highlander in romance novels? I think it's that idea that you can be totally and completely loved forever beyond death and like there's something magical about Scotland in and of itself. It's like just a much just an unfamiliar enough place close enough to England that feels <laughs> like a foreign shore. Yeah. Peopled by people who speak a different language, wear different clothes, like but also speak the same language differently. I think like I, I agree with the second part. I don't think everyone who reads um, Highlander romances is thinking about the <laughs> immortality. I think they are the immortality of Highlander. <laughs> they are not. They they are. You can like not care for the idea of living forever and enjoy a Highlander romance. But I think there's something. I think you're right. That's something about like a more like rugged but still white historical setting. Yep. Bunch of taciturn alpha males that you can depend on to love you and only you. Yeah, slightly less fancy than the English lords and dukes. Yeah. They're half naked in their kilts and they got nothing underneath them. When men were men. And I think it's, you know, I do feel like there were a lot of Highlander books in the 90s around the culture wars. And I think that does smack of the like, when men were men and women were women type thing. We also can't get away from the fact that it's like barbarous whites. Yeah. Like the racism of white racism, but also like, uh, I don't want to call it a dog whistle for white supremacy functionaries, but there's a wonderful... um, I will. No. (laughs) Okay. I, I, I mean, you can. There's Elizabeth Kingston, who writes in Medieval Romance, currently did a wonderful presentation on how white supremacist symbols can eke their way into romance spaces yeah. like Highland Romance and like Viking and like Medievals, that there are actually quite a lot of, it's not quite a circle, but it's a very, very big Venn diagram in the middle. And so like, we should all be aware of that and like how like, yeah, what we're ingesting in that way is functioning. Yeah. So just like as it's like a thing to be aware of. Whoopsie, another weirdest part. So <laughs> Womance or Nomance? Oh, it's a Womance for me. I read this actually 10 years ago. I was, I loved it then. I don't love it quite as much the second time a decade oh, later. Really? But I would recommend it. Like, I think it stands up. It's still a really quality romance book. I just like, yeah. I fell in love with it. And this time I like, I'm a little more mature. Things have happened, you know, yeah. like I've grown up yeah. a bit. I told Isabel I needed a romancy romance. And so this is what we picked. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like this, this uh, tickled all the um, Judith Ivories for me. <laughs> <laughs> Great one. It, it did. Because it, 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 it's like, it is a romancy romance novel for people who like romance novels. I'm not going to like... If if you really enjoyed like, you know, the the Brown sisters or, you know, you really got into Bridgerton recently, like I think even that level of like casual, fucking casual, uh, <laughs> get into this um, and appreciate it. But I don't think like, mm-hmm. I think if you just came off the street, this wouldn't be it. I would recommend something more, more in line with like Judith Ivory or Beverly Jenkins or... For the historical romance, Laverell Spencer. But I also, I would definitely recommend this before I point anyone towards Widowis. Yeah, me too. Widowis is only, Widowis is the dark web of romance at this point that underpins everything. And we just can't eight chain our way out of it. And you can't just go in there willy nilly. I don't know. Any other parting thoughts, Isabel? No, I think we covered quite a bit of ground. We did, in a reasonable amount of time for once. 
Uh, as always, this was a supreme pleasure. I'm glad that we could talk this out. And I hope uh, if you wanted to talk about uh, Julie Garwood podcast listeners that this was enjoyable for you as well. Yeah, hit us up in the Instagram comments, the Instagram DMs, email, all those cool places. We're really excited. Thank you um, for staying honest about reading uh, Garwood. We can now say we did it. Yep. Still holds up. <laughs> With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Kravlin. And our webmistress is Dane Bontrock. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at Womance and on Twitter where we are at Mance underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcast. Until next time.